All right, well, let's dig in. Uh, So open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 12. Uh, Last week, we talked about the sanctification of the body, presenting your bodies to the Lord as an act of worship. Uh, Today, we're talking about a hugely important issue, hugely important issue for us on a daily basis and over the course of our lives, and that is the mind. Your, your mind, not your brain, your mind. This is, this is where the greatest spiritual battles of your life take place. It takes place right in here. If you'll, you think, like, say, look at the book of Job. Job was attacked physically so that he might be affected mentally. The stresses and the struggles we're going through on the outside aren't where the battle takes place. It's where it hits us inside of ourselves or the inner person. And that's where the battleground is. And that also, according to the Bible, is where the transformation takes place for the disciple of Jesus. The ongoing transformation of the work of God's spirit in us, in our minds. Um, So, hugely important, hugely important. Uh, Anxiety, desires, beliefs, attitudes, hopes, loves, obsessions. That all takes place inside here. Inside this person not just on the outside. So last week we talked about offering our bodies to the Lord. This week we're talking about being renewed in our minds. Um, Focusing inward tonight. But before we start focusing inward, I want to offer a disclaimer. People often focus inward for therapeutic reasons. Um, You know, you need to think about yourself is the advice that we sometimes hear, which not sure how, if that's the right way to say it, really. (laughs) I think that focusing inward for therapeutic reasons, for reasons of, of helping myself, um, clouds our judgment because that's sort of a narcissistic motive. I'm focusing on me for me. That's kind of a narcissistic motive. And so it, it of course, is, it's flawed from the beginning, so it causes problems. That kind of thing is problematic. In fact, some of modern therapy, not, I'm not against all modern therapy, but some of modern therapy, it just creates narcissists. It just creates people that are obsessed with themselves, thinking about themselves, focused on themselves, and as long as they're happy with themselves, then everything's okay. And that kind of becomes the result of the, where the, ther- the, the therapy person just mirrors back whatever the person says, affirming whatever they affirm and denying whatever they deny, that, that sort of attitude. Rather, we should not appease ourselves. We should focus inward tonight for a different reason. We should focus inward for worshipful reasons. I'm taking a look inside me for the glory of God. That's the purpose. That's the motive. That's the reason. So I do need to look in the sky. I need to consider inside of this person I am. But for the Lord, and that gives me clarity when I see these things. I see them clearly, and it gives me focus on what to do about it. So let me just read the verses we're in today. Romans 1, and, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Last week we went over verse 1. I'll read it for recap. I beseech you, therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then that carries forward, that connects to the verse 2. It's kind of the result of verse 1. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So let's pull verse 2 apart, kind of piece by piece. Uh, First thing it says is, do not be what? Conformed. Don't be conformed to this world. To to be conformed is to change someone's behavior to be like something else. Now I'm being conformed. Uh, I had a friend who, when she would hang out with certain people, she would take on their behaviorisms. Um, And this wasn't a spiritual issue. This was just a weird quirk she had. She would just take on their behaviorisms. If they had slang that they used, then she would use slang by the end of that conversation. I, we know some people like this. They'll be talking normal, then they pick up the phone to answer, and they're talking totally different because of the person that's on the other side of the phone. 
you know? Um, you know, an emo kid might be hanging with his buddies and then his mom calls him. He's like, hey, mom. You know, like all of a sudden it's new behavior because of who he's talking with. That's the idea of me conforming my behavior to be like the world. The issue here, though, isn't slaying or man- mannerisms in a simple sense. It's really the issue of sin. So don't, don't change your behavior to be like the world. Please don't do this. This is, a, this is a command in scripture. Christian, you're not supposed to be like the world. You know, don't be like them. This is, in our, in, in, in our culture, where we live here in Southern California, this is not something we pay a lot of attention to sometimes. A lot of Christians take pride in how much they are like the world. In fact, some churches, this is, this is their goal, is to be as much like the world as possible. And um, so we need to analyze this. But first, I've got to ask the question, what does it mean, the world? What does that mean? Do not be conformed to this world. What do, what do I mean by world? Because the Bible uses the word world in different ways. In our English translation in particular, it'll use the word world referring to all people, like John 3.16. God so loved the world. Well, obviously, this is a different context than what Romans 12.2 is talking about. God loves the world so much. Don't be like the world. Okay, this is a different context. The world here is talking about all people that exist, the people themselves. The world is also used to talk about the physical universe. And God created, he created the world. He made all things. This is, this is a, um, a real sort of material type concept, the world. It's used in that sense too. But it's also used, the world, as a phrase meaning the non-Christian realm of influence where God is not reigning as king. So this is any area of society where God is not being submitted to. That's the world in this negative sense, in the sense of don't be like. Don't be like this world. So it's the world's system, the world's standards, and the world's way of living. Don't be like them. This doesn't mean you can't get involved in government. It means that you get involved in government, but you don't act in the ungodly ways that some of the government leaders sitting across the aisle from you are acting. It doesn't mean you can't get involved in a business that's working in this world to get money and provide for people and all that. You can, but you don't do it in the worldly way. You, you, we do all of our things in a godly way. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 mentions this concept as well. It says, Who gave himself for our sins, speaking of Jesus, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That's actually the same Greek word, that we have here in Romans 12 too. Don't be like this world. He also, it says in Galatians 1, 4, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, this world. Same Greek word, same sense. So for Christians, we have this sense of separation. I mean, now here I'm living in this world, but I'm separate from it. And I, I've actually felt this way since I got saved. As long as I've been a Christian, I always felt a sense of not belonging. Not, not, I'm not saying not loving, not caring for. That's not the issue at all. No, no, there's more love and more care, more concern, and more involvement to try to make a difference in the world, all those things, but less identity in this world. I don't, I don't belong. There's a sense of separation there. This is a biblical dichotomy. A dichotomy is a fancy word for when you, when you separate something into two sections. If I cut an apple in half, I've made a dichotomy. <laughs> I've got the left side and the right side, and you're in one or the other. That's the deal. So you've got the world, and you have the church, or those who belong to God, those who are his. So there's a, a negative and a positive thing. I'm, I'm now, according to Romans 12 too, do not be conformed, don't change my behavior to be like this world, the ungodly living of this world, but be transformed. 
And that's the positive. So the negative, don't be conformed. The positive, but be transformed. Why do I labor that point? Because some people think you can do both. I can be conformed to this world, and it has no effect on me whatsoever. How many of us have heard someone say this? Well, I'm doing this ungodly thing, but it has no impact on me whatsoever. Says you. <laughs> but the Bible says you reap what you sow. So obviously it's going to have an impact on you. Obviously it will affect me if I make bad decisions. Christians, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Meaning this is an area where we can be deceived. So I, I can be conformed to this world. And as much as I am conformed to this world, I will not be transformed in my mind. There's, there's a choice being made. When I yield to sin, it's not just the momentary issue of sin. It's the effect it has on the internal person who, of who I am. That's what this scripture is getting at. Let me read to you some other scriptures on this because uh, I think this is a hugely important issue. First uh, John chapter 2, um, it's speaking of the world here. First John 2 verses 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone, let me read it again, if anyone loves the world, speaking about that ungodliness that we see in the world, if you love this, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. In James 4, we have another strong admonition about this issue. James 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Let me read that again, because the words are really powerful here. Do you not know that friendship with the world, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity is a, is a hatred. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. God doesn't want to share us with ungodliness. So the world here, I take in the sense of ungodliness. I don't think it means I have a friend who's not saved. So I'm a friend of the world. No, that's not what this means. It means I am aligning myself with ungodliness in my life. Ungodliness is not just something that's around me, right? It's not just I'm in Sodom, but now it's Sodom's in me. That's the thing when the world gets into me. That's when I'm becoming this friend of the world. You know, if, if, uh, if your friend's surprised to find out you're a Christian, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> Um, that's, that's what I'm reading here. So I, I wrote, I read these scriptures to us because there are many people who self-righteously love the idea of being friends of the world. And I don't understand this kind of Christianity. I've never been this kind of person, but I've met plenty of people who are where they look down on anybody who like me just starts talking in the direction of being sanctified and set apart and other than the things that are going on in the world. And they're like, smells like legalism to me, Mike. Oh, you don't understand the liberty we have in Christ. You're like, oh, you, you're weak brother, weak brother. You know, and this is the attitude they may have. But when it comes to sin, there's no question. I don't fit into this world. I'm not supposed to be like this world. I'm to deliberately, purposefully avoid being like the world when it comes to anything that touches the issue of sin. This is pretty strong. I think that there's an application uh, when we read this concept in scripture. There's an application to ministries in general. And I give a word to anybody who's serving in ministry is we have to divorce our ministries from the disease of popularity confirmation. That is thinking that the numbers you're looking at 
mean you're doing good. Or the numbers you don't see mean you're doing bad. By this standard of numbers, most ministries throughout the Bible were failures. By the standard of numbers, if you went to Elijah's time, the ministry that was doing really good was the ministry of Jezebel and her prophets of Baal. (laughs) There's the big thriving ministry, and there's Elijah. He's like, I can't even find anybody else who loves the Lord. Um, this This is really a bad deal. In fact, I, as, okay, I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor, I've, so I've been to the Calvary Chapel, some of the Calvary Chapel like uh, conferences and things like this. I usually don't make it to those things because I'm like three days in the middle of the week, man. Who's got time for that? But <laughs> but but, uh, but when I've gone out, it's always like this. We all know that the size of your church doesn't matter. Yet, and I would never do this to another pastor, but I've had him ask to me over and over again. So where do you fellowship? Oh, Hosanna and Bellflower. Oh, how big's your church? And I'm just. Like, if I was a little more snarky than I am, I would just make up random numbers and see how they responded, you know? I'd be like, oh, there's only three of us. <laughs> it's just three of us, <laughs> me and my sister <laughs> and her kid. That's all we got, you know? Like, like, or I would be like, oh, yeah, 15,000. Yeah. 15,000. That's each service. Seven services each Sunday. Like, I'm not like that, so I wouldn't do that. But I just, I would just be curious if the rest of the time they'd walk around and look at you and be like, that guy's only got three people. Is, is he even a pastor? Like, that guy's 15,000. Like, whatever he says, it must be right. But if, if, you, if you realize we're not friends of the world, we're not like the world, the church is ultimately for the church. Like, our gathering is for believers. And for those who are interested in possibly, I don't know, maybe becoming a believer and following Jesus, that's what our meeting is for. It's ideally for this. Now, we try to extend an element of outreach in, in our gatherings and that sort of thing, but it's for believers and so that we might be unlike this world and more transformed to be like Jesus. Um, and this is something we can rejoice in. We have to stop looking at ministries and thinking, wow, look how big they are. They must be doing something right. It's entirely possible that you could say, look how big they are. They must be doing something wrong. I'm not saying that's the, that it's equally possible, right? It's just as likely that they're messing up, and that's why so many people don't seem to mind sitting in the pews there. Like, I come as an unbeliever, and I never feel convicted. <laughs> like, well, then, um, all right, that's not the kind of church I want, man. I'd rather have 100 people that love Jesus than 10,000 people that are like, I'm an atheist, but I still go to church because I, I feel happy there. You know, like, okay, that's cute, but that's not the point, is it? We're not to be conformed to this world. So... John 15, Jesus said this, John 15, verses 18 and 19, he says, If the world hates you, you know that you must be doing something wrong. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That wasn't, that wasn't Jesus. That was some other preacher. It says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If the ungodly elements in society are hating you and your ministry, that's not really a big deal. That's what they did to Jesus. That's what Jesus said they would do to us. Don't worry about it. Now, this is so liberating to Christianity. When I go, I don't have to please the Lord, the church, and the world. In fact, I want to please the Lord, bless the church, and reach the world but I certainly don't have to please any except for one of those. You know, this is, this is what I want to do. So I think this is, this is great. Now, um, 
to be rounded, I like, you know, I want to be rounded. I want to be a rounded biblical thinker, a rounded biblical liver. Liver? <laughs> that didn't come out right at all. Uh, you know what I mean. So I want to avoid um, someone taking this and perhaps they are kind of a, a legalist type person or perhaps they do take this in the wrong sense. So let's, let's round this out. What would be some wrong ways of saying that's worldly? Like if I go, that's worldly, and I'm pointing at something that's really not worldly, what would that sort of thing be? Well, for one thing, trendy doesn't equal worldly. If it's trendy, that doesn't mean it's worldly. If guys start growing their hair long because of some trend or tying it up in some ridiculous looking man bun, that's weird to me because I didn't grow up with that probably and because you look like a girl, but it's, it's just a trend. It really doesn't matter. It's not worldly just because it's trendy. If, if someone comes in and, they, and they're like, dude, that guy's completely trendy. Everything about him is totally trendy. Okay, who cares? There are some who would think that trendy equals worldly. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, J. Vernon McGee, who I, who I actually really love and appreciate his ministry, and I say currently because he still has a ministry. He's going through the Bible every five years on, uh, on radio all over the world, even though he long ago went to be with the Lord. Um, but his ministry through the Bible, if you listen to his, have you guys heard his stuff before? If you listen to his ministry through the Bible, you might come across that one study he taught where he talked about how drums were evil and didn't belong in the church. Anybody else ever hear that? You ever notice that when he taught that one? I was like, Mr. McGee, <laughs> what are you saying, man? Drones are evil and don't belong in the church. Why? Because in his generation, he grew up and drums were not really used. They became popularized, maybe in jazz bands, but they became popularized by rock bands who had a lot of ungodly elements in their music. So he associated drums with the ungodly stuff, the worldly stuff that was in these, this rock music. He associated that with rock music. So when someone wanted to bring the drums into the church, he just figured, you're bringing the ungodliness into the church too. He said, the last time I checked, round pieces of wood with skin on top of them don't automatically bring sin into the building, to my knowledge. And after reading Psalm 150, I don't see how anybody could say any particular instrument is evil. I mean, I'm just saying, Psalm 150, it says, like, praise him with everything. And it specifically mentions drums and loud clanging cymbals and things like that. So I'm going, all right, J. Vernon Mickey, what happened to you? You were a godly guy. What was your mistake? You mistook a trend for worldly. Instead of seeing the worldliness in the trend, you just saw and, and attached the two. Like somebody, maybe they've listened to carnal country music. And it really stumbled them. So now if they hear anything that's country related at all, they feel like it's wicked and sinful. Yet there might be country music that totally glorifies the Lord. And so we shouldn't, you're saying, no, there's not. <laughs> and well, I'm not a big country fan, but I don't really care. My point is we have to separate the trend from the ungodliness in the trend to be able to see clearly on those issues. Now, if it stumbles, you don't do it. We'll get there in Romans 14. We'll get to the issue of personal conscience and what stumbles you. But it, I don't want us to say trendy equals worldly. Um, we have to separate the trend from the sin. Um, I knew of a girl who came to our youth ministry and she'd come to, from a different church and she came and asked me after church and she, um, she says, Pastor Mike, I have a question for you. I said, what is it? She says, is it okay for girls to wear pants? Is it a sin if they wear pants? And I said, of course, obviously, yes. Um, uh, no, but what, what had actually happened is she went to a church not, not far from here, just a few blocks away, where the whole congregation, all the girls wear dresses. Now, I don't care that they wear dresses. That's fine. I think dresses are nice. I like when girls wear dresses. I think it's nice. But they taught that it was sin if they didn't. And that's a different issue, isn't it? 
I mean, I don't see in scripture where it says, you know, it definitely says like in the law, it actually said girls wear girl clothes, guy wear guy clothes, don't be cross-dressing. That's actually in the Levitical law. I don't think that we're under the law, but there's a principle there where God's like, look, I made gender for a reason. We should preserve these gender distinctions. That's important. But last time I was in the girls section, also sounds weird. I go with shopping with my wife. So, <laughs> so last time we were together and she's like, do you like this shirt or whatever? Yes. I noticed that there were, I don't know, girl pants. <laughs> so I figure if they're girl pants and the girls, there's probably nothing wrong with it. So that again is the issue of, of, of associating trends because their church probably came from a trendy tradition where skirts and dresses is what girls wore, guys wore pants. And then when random trends of society shifted along those lines, they couldn't separate the trend from the sin. So that, that, that's a mistake that we sometimes make. Um, so I, I think uh, another one is uh, slang doesn't necessarily equal worldly. If someone uses slang, now I think cussing is sin. I, I, I'm fully convinced that cussing is sin. And I know many believers, even around the world, disagree with me on this. They're wrong, but maybe they'll come around. Um, I'm just saying no corrupt word. <laughs> so, um, but as far as I know, society, these words are corrupt, so we shouldn't allow them to come out of our mouths. But, but let's say that someone just has slang, like they're just... They just talk, whatever, in some slangy terms and that sort of thing. This isn't necessarily like an ungodly thing or a worldly thing. This is just probably a, a, a regional thing. The area where they live and the group they hung out with growing up. That's not really an issue. Sinfulness, worldliness, that equals lack of submission to God. So I think if there's a sense in which within this trend, there's a rebellion to God. The rebellion's the issue, not the trend. And that would be, I think, a wise way we could analyze our own lives. There are certain things that are popular. Do I partake of these things? Well, okay, there are certain trends that come in with clothing that are not only trendy, they're also very lusty, very carnal. They are, they are meant to stir up lust in other people. Okay, well, that's a sin issue there. It's connected to a trend, but the sin issue is what we really got to deal with. So we, we should address those issues as well. So that's one side. We don't want to identify worldliness wrong, but the other issue is this. A lot of Christians, they have bad excuses for worldliness. So they're kind of on the flip side. They're, they're not, maybe like me, I've always, I've always leaned more conservative, leaned more like better safe than sorry, like don't partake, you know, kind of issue. That's the way I've always leaned. But there's others who lean the other way. And they typically say things like, well, it doesn't bother me. But I'm, I'm like, I keep looking for that scripture passage that says, and when you follow Jesus, just don't do anything that doesn't bother you. Like, it's not about you. <laughs> First question <laughs> Does it bother my Lord and Savior? Second question, does it bother my neighbors and my friends and loved ones? Third question, does it bother me? That's the order of, of things. But they go straight to does it bother me and they don't think about anything else. That is a mistake. Um, so there's some bad excuses for worldliness. Sometimes it's outreach. Um, well, it's outreach, man. I'm witnessing to these people. When I hang out with these ungodly people and we do ungodly things and we have ungodly jokes and we have ungodly relationships. But... They cuss less when I'm around. So it's outreach. Biblically, let me say this. This is a dictionary issue, right? Outreach is a gospel term, not a relational term. Outreach is not a relationship. Relationships aren't outreach. They're relationships. <coughs> outreach is what you do with, with sharing the gospel to people. So if I go and I feed the homeless, but I don't share the gospel, that's not outreach. That's feeding the homeless, which is good, but don't call it outreach. Like this is just confusion. 
If I go and I hang out with my friends and I spend week after week and month after month and year after year with them and I never share the gospel, that's not outreach. That's just friendship. So this is just the biblical term, outreach. In fact, to, to preach the gospel, like break it down, it means what? To say it out loud, the gospel. You are a sinner. You need Jesus. He paid for you. God loves you. Turn your life to him. That, that would be preaching the gospel, but it requires words. So sometimes we, we become worldly, we use outreach as an excuse, but we're not actually outreaching. Um, another one that I sometimes have heard is the accusation of legalism. This is one I heard a lot when I was younger because I sort of almost hung out with two different kinds of Christians. I had like these kinds of Christians that were very strict, you know, and I felt like aligned with that. Like this idea was a strict sort of careful walk with the Lord, abstain from anything that might seem problematic, you know, in your walk. And another group of Christians that never really worried about any of that kind of stuff. And they looked at you funny if you brought it up. They were like, oh, have you seen that movie? And you're like, no, I haven't seen that. And they're like, oh. And they were like judging you for not partaking or something. It was weird, you know. And I kind of had these two different groups. And the accusation of legalism would come up if someone found out that I didn't like listen to secular music or something like that. Oh, you're a legalist. And I was like, well, I didn't say you couldn't. I just, I just didn't, you know. I don't want to. Is that okay? And they, they looked down, actually, on me, to be honest. Um, what's a biblical response? Well, legalism is a, is, a, is a serious issue. If you are a legalist, here's the important thing to know. You're not saved. Legalism, biblically, the legalist issue is someone who thinks you have to perform works to be saved. The law of works is how you'll be saved. That's legalism. Telling Christians they're under the law. That was legalism. But we've taken that word and we've imported it to our Christian vernacular where it's like someone goes, um, I don't know if that was very loving the way you just talked to your mom. <gasps> don't be legalist, man. Wait a minute. I thought love was the greatest command. <laughs> That's not legalism. That's just love. Now, I don't like it when people point out my problems, but that doesn't mean they're a legalist. That's, that's just not very careful theology. Um, so... No standard of actually living holy can be called legalism and dismissed. Now, somebody who believes in the real standard of holiness we're called to can become sort of a blind, you know, judge machine to everyone they're around. I'm going to fix and tweak everybody and all their issues. Every time they do something wrong, every time they look sideways, I'll be like, what would Jesus do? You know, I'm gonna, and I'm going to do this over and over. And I, and I forget that the call is for me to follow Jesus, not for me to grab everybody by the neck and force them to follow Jesus like that. That it, it really is a constant work of grace in my life. And you shouldn't expect everyone to know everything you know about sanctification all at once. But, but those are bad excuses for worldliness, though. Um, to say it's outreach, but you're actually in sin. That's not outreach, you're just in sin. To say it's legalism, and then you go and do your sin, that's not legalism, dude. It's holiness. We're called to holiness. That's good. But there is a sobering reality that I may not feel or see my own worldliness. We're like the, the, the frog in the, in the pot of water. You know, the, you guys have all heard the analogy. If you take a frog, a cold-blooded creature, you, you throw it into a, bot of, a pot of boiling water, it's going to jump out, freak out, and get out of there as quick as possible. But if you put it in a pot of room temperature water and then you turn the fire on and let the heat slowly rise, the frog doesn't realize the temperature is going up because it can't tell because it's acclimated to the temperature. And so it just gets cooked right there. Now, I must say, I don't know if this is true. And I don't recommend you try it to find out. <laughs> so I have been told, I'm not sure who figured this out or why, 
But it's a, it's a fitting analogy for what happens though. I'm in the I'm in the world, and I'm in a worldly part of the world. We live in Southern California, like this is a pretty ungodly area, and I have to think that I may be desensitized to some of my own ungodliness just because of those around me, not so much you guys as the world around me. You know, not you, not you, obviously. <laughs> but um. But I don't want to be like this. I, I, I want to not be conformed to the world, but I want to be transformed. Do you know how much of the Bible, the New Testament in particular, is written to Christians to try to say, like, hey, wake up. Hey, wake up. You have this amazing calling in your life. Hey, over here, over here. Look up. Turn your eyes upon heaven. Rid your life of worldliness. Follow Jesus. In fact, the wake up passage in Corinthians. Wake up, oh, you sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. That was written to Christians. I mean, look, read, the, read the letters in Revelation about what Jesus says to the churches. And one time we were at a meeting and, and somebody asked, like, what, what church in the book of Revelation do you think we are? And, um, and everybody went around. And, and, you, and you, you, if you know those seven churches well, you know there's only two to pick from. <laughs> if, you know, for you to say who you want to be, right? And you're like, but we're not being martyrs, so I guess we can't be that one. You know, so, so you're like, Philadelphia? You know, <laughs> but the reality is that if you, if you went to all those churches, they all would have thought they were Philadelphia, right? That, so I just want to be honest and say, look, I'm not looking at myself inwardly for self-approval. I'm looking inwardly for God's direction. Lord, show me if there's worldliness in my heart because I don't want it to be there. Show me just to live more godly. I want to be renewed in my mind. Well, that means I need to be not conformed to this world so that I can be transformed. So much of the Bible is like this. Let me read to you one, uh, one of the verses in mind. Uh, Hebrews 5.14, where Paul writes, uh, Paul, excuse me, I, it might be Paul. I really don't know who it is. Some people think it was Paul. Um, Hebrews 5.14, he says, But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Let me explain the context of that verse. He's writing to them, and he's like telling them about these gospel issues and Old Testament pictures and New Testament realities and all this stuff. And he says to them, oh, I want to I wanna teach you so much more theology, but you're dimwits. You're, you're spiritually dull. And he then explains why they're spiritually dull. He says the reason why is because I want to give you solid food, like deeper theology. That's the solid food. But instead, he says, nah, but you don't have what? Your senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You aren't careful in what you call good and in what you call evil. You casually let evil come into your, your zone or your life without identifying it for what it is. And therefore, get this, you're not ready for deeper theology. That's really interesting to me. They weren't having a right attitude of holiness, and so they weren't ready for deeper theology. So in other words, our attitude towards sin and worldliness prepares us to have a mind that's impacted more by God. That's exactly what Romans is talking about. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Now, let me ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it. <laughs> Out loud, anyway. Um, if you had to pick between these two options, what, which one would you pick? Option one, living a life that is just totally too strict. One that's way, way too strict. You do not need to be this strict in your Christian life about how much you pray, how much you read the Bible, all the things you abstain from. You do not have to be this strict, but that's one option. You're way too strict. The other option is you're not strict enough and you let sin into your life. 
But imagine this, from this day forward, you have to pick and stick to whichever one you chose. Living a more relaxed life where there's more sin, or living the much stricter life, but you know you're safe, you're not sinning, but you're doing more than you even have to do, by far. Which would you pick? Just think, which does your, does, does your inner self just go towards? That's the direction I would go. Because that might reveal something about us. And you start to maybe, if you're like me, feel the struggle of sin. About how you're like, Lord, I want to live a holy life. And you're like, but I'm kind of lazy too. Um, and we start to realize this. It seems to me that, that that reveals maybe what side we lean on. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And that, that word in the Greek, it's the same word we get our, our English word, metamorphosis. So it really is transformed. So Christians are to be transformers more than meets the eye. <laughs> <laughs> we are, that's from the old cartoon, that sound, by the way. Um, we are on a journey of, and some people are like, that's worldly, Mike. And I'm like, okay, listen to the first part of my message. Um, where, as a Christian, we're on a journey of inside out transformation. From the inside out, we're being transformed, we're being changed. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about this. So listen to this verse and think of how it relates to our topic. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let me read that. I'm going to read the concepts that I just read to you in reverse. This sounds kind of strange, but I think it helps the verse come together for you. God's Spirit is taking me from glory to glory. And I'm being transformed into his image. But, but the first part of that verse 318 is amazing. With unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. As in a mirror? If I'm looking in a mirror, what am I seeing? Me. So what I'm seeing is I'm seeing God's glory being worked out in me. God's glory in my transformation is I'm becoming more Christ-like. I'm, be, I'm becoming more and more of his image. So it's currently, it's an internal thing. This is an internal transformation. Now later on, this is, there's an external transformation that takes place, right? My body will be renewed as well. I will have a body fit for eternity, fit for glory, all of that. I can't wait for that. I want to, I want to upgrade this, this, trade this model up for the better one, all right? That would be really nice. <laughs> um, but Romans 12, 2 is speaking on the internal. It's speaking about the internal glory to glory, the, the internal transformation. Speaking of my mind, my behavior, my nature, all of that. So, um, I see what I think is a key concept in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Key for the Christian life. But it's, it's, it's also throughout the book of Romans. So let me see if I, can, uh, if I can take what I've shared with you so far and show you how this fits with what we've seen throughout the book of Romans. I mean, he... He slowly got us to chapter 12, right? Let's not forget everything else we've heard. Um, based on Romans 1, I think I can say that when a person chooses sin, they become more sinful in their very inner person. Because Romans 1, it says that over and over again, it says they didn't choose to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a debased mind. It says that they, they chose sin, so God gave them over to vile passions. So they become more and more wicked and sinful because of the choices they make. They choose to sin and they become sin. Jesus said if anyone sins, he becomes a slave of sin. So this is the downside, right? That 
my, my choices of what I do with my body in the area of sin affect my internal person. And I, I go, I, instead of going from glory to glory, I go from gory to gory. I, get, I go downhill instead of uphill. That, that's the issue. I become, I become conformed. But Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, it gives us a completely opposite picture of this. It says in verse 1, present your bodies to the Lord. And in verse 2, and your minds will be transformed, renewed. So just like in chapter 1, we see them committing sin with their bodies and becoming internally more sinful. In chapter 12, we see the Christian life is living daily, moment by moment for Jesus with my physical body, and then that resulting in the renewal of my internal person. I'm saying you can change your mind with your actions. You can change your mind with your actions, which is good news because some of us are like, I really could use some internal mental transformation, Lord. And the idea is stop conforming to the world. And there may be things that come into your mind right now. I know exactly this, this way, there's this way and that way. These are the things I'm doing that are conforming. Stop that. Commit your ways to the Lord physically with your own body and let God renew your mind. I think that's really good news. So what is meant by mind? <clears throat> What's my mind in this context? I think it means multiple things. Um, it refers to, and this is the word itself, it can refer to these different things. It could be the, your way of thinking. Just your general attitude about things. This is kind of like the way you think about things. Um, your intellect itself, so intellectual capacities. Your emotional core, that is included in this idea of the mind, especially in the Greek. And it can also refer to the inner stuff of motives and desires and basically all that occupies your conscious self. So it really is more than just an intellectual thing. It goes into much more dimensions than that of a person's character. So what then, if that's my mind, if my mind is my emotions, my thoughts, my attitudes, my desires, my hopes, my fears, all, all that's included in my mind, then how do I get my mind renewed? Renewed. I like that word, renewed. It's not just new, it's renewed. I, I need my mind renewed. Because, why? Because the, the things of this world pollute it, and then God renews and restores it. Maybe... Your mind has been conformed. And you look in your mind and your, your inner self is like, there are some ways in which I get stuck on bitterness. I get stuck on selfishness. I get stuck on anger. I get stuck on lust. I'm just like, it's like this is part of who I am. The beautiful thing here is that as you walk in obedience to God, he'll renew the internal parts that you don't know how to affect and how to change. I think this is like a formula in this sense to be renewed. You can be renewed. There's hope for you. So the renewal here is like the undoing of Romans 1.28. In fact, let me read that verse to you. It says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which were not fitting. And so as Christians, I'm doing the things that are fitting and getting a renewed mind. People don't realize this. The, the evil people in Romans 1 are the saved people in Romans 12. <laughs> Let this sink in that God is doing a transformative work constantly in us as believers. Um, now, I'm tempted uh, as a pastor and as a Bible teacher, someone who especially loves being biblical, thinking biblically about everything. I'm tempted to, to talk about the Bible now, right? About having our minds renewed and speaking about the Bible. And, the, and I, I could because the Bible powerfully impacts our minds and changes us from the inside out. That's absolutely true. But that's not the point of the passage. The point of this passage is not about reading and studying the scripture. It's about living godly lives and having that make us more godly on the inside. The inner person becomes more of that. So that is ultimately by his spirit. 
So this transformation of my mind comes through acts of obedience. Let me summarize this point because I think this is a, a, a principle of Christianity that nobody ever taught me that I want us to hopefully get into our hearts. When we yield our bodies to sin, it takes our minds along with it. Our inner person goes down that road and we become more of that thing. Also, when we yield our bodies to God, it takes our minds along for the ride. And we become more godly from the inside out. Some people say, people don't change. Actually, based on scripture, people can't stay the same. Whatever actions they do, they will be changed. One way or another. And this is actually beautiful news. Ephesians 4 comes right alongside this this biblical principle. It says this in Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. We read this uh, last week, I believe. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Do you see how that principle is taking place there? The old man, his conduct was doing this and he was and the growing more corrupt. That was before Christ. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So I'm now living a holy life, living a godly life, and this renewal of my mind is taking place. There's a connection between your behavior and your mind, your inner person. So anybody who says, it doesn't affect me. I don't care what the action is. It doesn't affect me. They're wrong. I know some people who go, man, I tried reading the Bible. I was reading it every day and it had no effect on me. And like, I, I've had people tell me that before. Um, not many people, but there's been a few. And I just thought, huh. So what happened when you stopped reading the Bible? Oh, yeah, well, my life went downhill. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> what do you want me to tell you, you know? Um, we say it has no effect on us because we're just dim-witted sometimes. Okay, I don't necessarily know. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the worst patient at the doctor. Because the doctor's like, when did these symptoms first come up? And I'm like, I don't know. It was like maybe a couple years ago. I don't remember. You know, and then they go, well, how bad does it hurt on a scale of 1 to 10? And I'm like, I don't know. I always say like 4. Because I don't know. I'm just like really unaware of these types of things until they become extreme, right? And then you're like, oh, I'm going to go to the doctor. That, that tends to be the way it is. As a Christian, sometimes our spirits are being impacted and affected negatively by things. And we're unaware of these issues. I'm just saying, let's just take God's word that sin always requires a cost. And that right living, godly living, always carries a blessing. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So what's the end result? Now we get to the hard part of Romans 12 too, the part that I think a lot of people don't understand, uh, even after sitting in a Bible study. So let me see if I can try to help with this. This difficult phrase, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Prove? Okay, that's not how English usually works, right? Like, uh, prove the perfect and good and acceptable will of God. This, this is a difficult phrase. And it's difficult because I think we don't have a, a perfect English word to put in place of the Greek word that's there. This is one of those moments where it's a je ne sais quoi, you know, like, my favorite French word, because it means I don't know what it is. <laughs> so you sound really sophisticated when you're really just saying you're ignorant. So uh, there's this, this, this word, this word translated prove it has a certain je ne sais quoi. You know, it, we don't know what it is. Okay, it's dakamazo is the, is the actual Greek word, but it means to prove by testing, to examine, to interpret, to discern, to demonstrate, to judge as good, or to approve. 
What English word says all that? Yeah, we don't have a, a really good equivalent for that. So um, as I understand it, these definitions all relate to one of really three different things. Recognizing something for what it is, demonstrating the truthfulness of that thing, like showing it to others uh, or yourself, and endorsing or approving of that thing. So I, so I see it for what it is, I demonstrate that it's real, and I approve of it, I'm, I'm affirming of those things, of the factual truthfulness of it. So think of that in place of the word prove. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That you may, these three things, dim, uh, recognize the truthfulness that God's will is acceptable, good, and perfect. That you may demonstrate to the world that God's will is acceptable, good, and perfect. And that you may affirm the truthfulness of that fact as well. So you're, you're recognizing it, affirming it, and demonstrating it. Um, so let's talk about those concepts. Th that's why in any translation you're going to have a difficult time on that particular verse, um, I think. So let's take those three concepts, recognizing God's will. Um, this is not just, as, as some people take it, um, if I'm being renewed in my mind, I recognize God's will as in, I know if I should go left or right at the stoplight. That's not primarily the issue of God's will. Um, scripture is more emphasizing God's will for our lives in general than it is emphasizing God's will for our lives in little decisions we make. In fact, some of us, we, we have the disease of not being able to make choices. Um, I always want divine direction for each choice I make because I don't want any bad things to happen in my life. Um, here's a thought. If, if you lean on that side of things, God, you have to confirm to me what to do all the time. God would not have written the book of Proverbs if he didn't want you to make decisions. Think about it. Why would you need wisdom if all you needed was direction? <laughs> Wisdom comes for those things. Now, God, I do believe the Lord does sometimes lead us and guide us in our choices. And sometimes in my life, I pray, I seek the Lord, I have no direction. So I, I make wisdom with wise counsel. I make a choice and I move forward and I use godly principles in my life. And that's perfectly fair. There's nothing ungodly or unspiritual about that. But the main will of God that we're talking about in Romans 12.2, I think is God's will for our sanctification. That's what 1 Thessalonians says. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, this is the will of God. Are you ready? This is the will of God. Oh, Lord, is his name Toby? What's his name? I want to marry him. You know, is that, is that the will of God? Or like, what's the, is, is it, is it going to be, I'm going to be a, a trash man. What's my job, Lord? I want to know. Um, this is the will of God. Drum roll. Okay. Your sanctification. Oh, that. Oh. <laughs> That's not as, as exciting to me. That should be more exciting to you. Because this is a bigger deal than who you marry. Your sanctification. This is a bigger deal than what job you get. This may be a shocking reality here. But the phrase that you may be able to prove God's will, it might here be saying, if you don't offer your bodies to the Lord, you won't even know what sanctification looks like. You, will, you literally will turn to people and say, it doesn't bother me. My sin has no impact on me. I think I'm fine. Because you can't see because you become darkened. Also, we demonstrate God's will. That would be in godly living and in the transformation that takes place in our lives. So we're, I'm, I'm, not, I'm proving God's will in the sense of recognizing it. I'm proving it in the sense of demonstrating it. So I live out God's will. I, I, I mean, that's kind of exciting if you think God's amazing. And you're thinking you get to live out his will in this world. That's pretty exciting. And then finally, uh, you get to endorse his will. And I think this is real maturity. Is when the Christian... They not only know 
that's right, that's wrong. But they, they agree. <laughs> they agree. That's wrong. And it's actually wrong. It's not secretly good. You know, stolen waters are sweet, Proverbs says. Stolen waters are sweet. Rumors and gossip, they're like tasty trifles. Taste, I almost said tasty truffles, but that'd be different. <laughs> but they're, they're like these... I remember stealing the candy bar when I was a kid. I thought, wow, this candy bar tastes better than normal candy bars. Because it had the excitement of theft. But now, I, I'm grown in spiritual maturity from the time I was nine till now, slightly. And if, if I was to steal a candy bar... I would not. But if I stole a candy bar now, it would, it would taste bitter in my mouth at this point because I've grown in my spiritual maturity to the point where I actually see some things as being not just don't do that, but as it's actually wrong. Like, ew. Sin takes on the ew factor, the yuck factor in the spiritually mature Christian. And godliness takes on the satisfaction factor in the spiritually mature Christian. So the immature believer, they have, they're not yet learning this, how to approve of the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So those are three qualities of God's will, or specifically three things that you need a renewed mind to understand. That's that God's will is good, God's will is acceptable, and God's will is perfect. So let's unpack those. I love words in the scripture that they're, they're there for a reason. <laughs> um, again, it's not primarily about specific decisions you make in life. You might want it to be about that. And I'm fine if it's about that, but I'm just reading the passage saying, I don't think that's the case. Um, this is primarily about the opposite of worldliness, which would be godliness. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed from the inside out. So first, God's will is good. His will is good. That is, it's morally upright. God's will is good. Whatever he wants, that's the right thing to do morally. But there's another side of that good coin, and that's just like, it's good. Like today, we, we went out with my mom, and we got lunch, and we had some chocolate cake for dessert. And you know what that cake was? It was good. <laughs> That's what it was. It was good. It was really tasty. It was good. And the barbecue was pretty good too. Um, so that's another side of the coin of God's will being good. That I, I look at God's will and I go, God, your will is good. I love it. It's desirable. It's satisfying. It's pleasurable. It's pleasurable. I don't say no to sin like, no, no sin. Oh, I want you so bad, but no. I'm just going to go do good things <sighs> like it's a burden. But rather, it's like, ew, no, yuck, get away, sin. Oh, I'm going to delight in the things of the Lord because I see that they're good. So the spiritually mature believer sees that God's will is good. It's wonderful. It's also acceptable. God's will is acceptable. And um, here's the question I'd have is, well, who's it acceptable to, me or the Lord? Well, ultimately, it's acceptable to the Lord. Obviously, it's, it's the good and pleasing or acceptable means pleasing. Same word here. Um, but it also is acceptable to me, like pleasing, satisfying to me. God's will is satisfying. Look at what Jesus said when he was, in fact, John chapter four, you might turn there. John four verse 34. We'll look at, I'll give you a second to turn there. Um, which I rarely do. Sorry, bad Bible teacher. Uh, but in John four, Jesus encounters the woman at the well and he's outside of the town of Samaria and he tells the disciples to go to Samaria for what reason? He says, go into the town because I am hungry. So they go to get him some food. He encounters this woman. He All this great stuff happens. There's too much to unpack today, right? And then the disciples come back and they're like, all right, Lord, we brought you some food. And then what does he say to them? John 4, 34, he says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
You know what's pleasing, what's satisfying to me? Doing God's will. Greater than my daily food is following his holy word. That is a mature believer's position. Now, if you don't feel this way, that's because you just need the continual renewal of your mind. As you submit your bodies to the Lord, not conform to this world, and your mind is renewed. You get more of the sense of the satisfaction of just doing God's will and just being pleased in it. God, I did your will. This is beautiful for ministry purposes because when you minister to people, you sometimes look at the reactions and you want to be satisfied by the reactions. Satisfied by the impact you think you see. But Jesus is giving us an example here to not be satisfied by the impact I think I see, but to be satisfied by simply the act of obeying God. That's, that's a little deeper. That's a little bit more. And then finally, uh, his, his, his will is what? Good, acceptable, and perfect. Perfect. Now, anytime you, just about any time you see the word perfect in your New Testament, it comes from a Greek word that can mean perfect, mature, complete, full-grown. So... I'm perfect in the sense that I'm fully grown. <laughs> like as far as I'm not getting any taller, I'm not getting any bigger, I'm a full-grown man. I'm perfect in that sense. I'm certainly not perfect in other senses, <laughs> that's for sure. So you have to, when you see that word perfect or mature or complete, it just depends on the context, what we mean. But when we speak of God's will being perfect, I think there's a maturity and a completeness in God's will in the sense that there's nothing to add to it. God, I know that you want me to do this, but, oh, I feel like my life would be better if I just sprinkled in a little bit of sin, a little bit of compromise. But the mature Christian can see that God's will is perfect and it doesn't need any additives. It doesn't need anything added to it. It's complete. That's all you need is the will of God. Some act like God's will is the lesser life instead of the greater life. The, the, the mature Christian sees that God's will is the greatest life you could possibly live. The immature Christian or possibly carnal Christian, they think that people who are living that, that really, really faithful walk with Jesus, that they're just missing out. And they look at them and they're like, man, I don't think I could live like you. You give up so much. And, and then the mature believer looks over at them and says, I don't think I could live like you. You give up so much. And that's the mature believer's mind. So to see that God's will is good, perfect, it's acceptable, it's all of those things. The world gets all three of these wrong, right? They don't think God's will is ultimately really good. They just think of it as oppressive most of the time. They don't think it's really acceptable or, or um, that it's really satisfying. It's not enough. And, uh, and they don't think it's perfect in the sense of it's, this isn't the mature life. This isn't the best life. This isn't none of those things. That just The world's confused. So don't be conformed to this world. <laughs> That's the point, right? Um, now, we don't want to be conformed in our actions or our attitudes, but I think the easiest thing to spot is when our attitudes or our, excuse me, our actions are wrong. Attitudes are a little harder to discern. It's hard for me to be aware of my attitude most of the time, um, but, but I can at least be aware of my actions and focus on those. And so um, it's a good practice to look at your daily life, the things you're doing, and just, just be like, Lord, is this action pleasing to you? Is this within your will? Um, and if you're thinking like, but that means I can't just walk on the beach and enjoy the, the, the air. And I'm like, well, yeah, um, yes, you can. As unto the Lord, actually, that, that would be the whole point. Now, there's, there's the big debates we can get into over um, conscious, conscious 
conscience issues, issues of conscience, your, your personal, where you draw the lines on what music you listen to, what movies you listen to or watch or don't watch and all that kind of stuff. That's hap- uh, handled in chapter 14. So we'll be getting there. Just, uh, just wait. It'll be in, it's sometime within the next 18 months. We'll be in chapter 14. Um, it doesn't, I'll just say this. It, it, it shouldn't matter that your issue doesn't bother you until after you've asked, does it bother the Lord and does it bother or hurt my neighbor? Then you can ask if it bothers you. But first, we need to put others first, put the Lord first. Um, and if you say, well, I know this is wrong, but it has no effect on me. That's certainly not true. Certainly not true. I, I once talked to a, a guy who was in ministry who said that him and his wife would get mad at each other and call each other names and yell at each other. That happened all the time and it had no effect on his marriage. And I looked at him the way you just looked at me. <laughs> really? Um, I'm thinking it affects your marriage. I'm thinking it affects your marriage. Um, and I don't know if they're still married or not, but you, yeah. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever you sow, you will reap. That's just the reality of it. So having our minds renewed, in closing, right? It's focused on offering my body to the Lord, and this affects a transformation in my mind. But I need to make a decision to not absorb the worldliness of the world so I can be sanctified and set apart for the Lord. And there is hope if your inner life is a little messed up and your mind seems a little corrupted, Focus on submitting your body to the Lord and let him work on your mind. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. Um, It's so applicable into our daily moment-to-moment life to submit our bodies to you, to live unto you physically, Lord, so that we might see our internal self transform more and more into the image of Christ from glory to glory. God, be glorified in us. Let us become mature Christians who see the goodness of your will, the perfection of your will, and the satisfaction of your will. We pray, God, that you just give us clear minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.